My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today I'm talking with Tyler Foley. He is the best-selling author of The Power to Speak Naked. He is the managing director of Total Buy-In. He is a uh, uh, sought-after public speaking um, expert. You have had a career in acting. You're doing podcast after podcast these days. And um, I just, before we get into everything you're doing now, I wanted to ask you a few questions about, you know, your life growing up, maybe some of your influences and and I know from reading uh, a little bit about you that, you know, you've had uh, quite the roller coaster uh, life. So, um, you know, let's start where it all began. You you uh, were born in Canada. Sure was. Yeah, born and raised in Calgary, Alberta. Um, it's uh, you know beautiful, beautiful country. Very, very similar to Montana, um, and. Uh, you know, just a little rural kid from a small farming community south of the city and you know, grew up. I don't know. I feel like I had a pretty regular childhood, you know, went to school. Um, the difference is, is I guess I always say that like it was a normal thing, but I got put into theater when I was six years old. So I first time I was on stage, I was six and I've, I've had a professional career in acting ever since I've, I've retired a couple of times from the actual business of show business and now I dabble in it occasionally but yeah no I've been in the theater since I was six years old went to a fine arts high school um I've lived all over the world <laughs> I feel like there isn't a city that I haven't visited or seen um I've, I've had the uh, definite privilege of travel how did you get uh, into theater at such a young age? Do you have a family that is in show business? No. So it actually, it, it happened in a really, um, like most things in life, right? It's a domino effect. One thing happens that creates another, that creates another. And if the circumstances hadn't have been perfect, it would never have worked out. Um, my father passed away when I was six years old. He um, was in a single vehicle car accident. And uh, I didn't really outwardly grieve my father's passing for probably six years. And my mother and my uncle, I think, were a little concerned about that and wanted to make sure that I had an outlet. So if I wasn't going to grieve, I at least had a, a place for my emotions. And theater just kind of seemed to make sense with that. Um, and so my... Uh, uncle worked at a uh, for the city of Calgary and the 
fine arts complex was just outside of that. And so he, um, he knew the casting director for the main theater company in Calgary. And he just asked, he was like, well, you know, my nephew had done a couple of Christmas plays and he seems to enjoy it. How would he go about getting in professionally? And she was like, oh, we're, you know, we're looking for a tiny Tim for our production of a Christmas Carol. You know, it's launching. I can't find this, that kid. And he's like, she's like, I need somebody who's small because, you know, to get small, you tend to get young. And he was like, well, he's really tiny. His dad was tiny. His mom is tiny. He's tiny. So maybe he'd be tiny Tim. And sure enough, I got to be tiny Tim. And it just kind of grew exponentially from there. I, again, my, my father hadn't passed. My uncle wouldn't have been looking or it wouldn't have been on his radar. Uh, he wouldn't have overheard this conversation that the casting director was having. And, you know, even the fact that he worked at city hall and was right across from the theater complex and took lunch there because my uncle never made a lunch for himself, like all of these different things combined. And that I, it kind of grew organically from there. You, you started in theater and you, you made a career out of acting. What are, what are some of the movies that you you've been in? So the fun ones that everybody knows uh, are the ones that you very, I, you see the least of me in, but like Freddy versus Jason, um, Scary Movie 3, that I did, I was in the remake, the TV remake uh, of Carrie with Angela Bettis. Um, and uh, my favorite show that I've ever done was um, a made for TV movie that I can't remember, it was, it was a network that put it together, like one of the... Um, cable networks like HBO, but that wasn't who the producer was, called Door to Door with William H. Macy. It had um, Bill and Dame Helen Murren were the, the main leads in it. And I got to do a wonderful scene with the two of them. And in fact, um, Helen Murren was nominated for a Golden Globe that year because of her performance in Door to Door. She actually won. And the clip that they played at the golden globe ceremony was the clip between me her and bill in the diner and so that was a just an absolute spectacular treat to be included in the golden globes <laughs> in my early 20s with helen Murren and and william h macy that was that was a thrill so and it's a great story too door to door i strongly encourage all of your listeners to go and check it out it's a it's a an incredible story of triumph over adversity. Um, William H. Macy played Bill Porter, who is a real life person from um, the north, the um, upper northwest. And um, I believe he came, he's in the Oregon or Seattle area, I can't remember which two, but, but the Pacific Northwest for sure. And he was a door to door salesman for Watkins, but he had uh, cerebral palsy. And despite the fact that he had cerebral palsy, he became their top salesman of the region and then in the country doing door-to-door -door sales. And, uh, and it's just an incredible story. And I absolutely love the show. I wish that I could have played a good guy instead of a bad guy. <laughs> I, was, I was pretty mean to Bill in that diner, <laughs> but it made for a good time. Nice. So can you walk me through what, what led you into your current career? How, how you got started with public speaking and really maybe talk a little bit about your message and how you ended up dialing in to this particular message. 
Well, so the to answer the first question, and then we'll get to the second, the first question, how did I get here? It's really circuitous. I mean, I started in, in theater and then moved to film and television. So I've always had a performance and fine arts background. And so I've always had a bit of a flair for the dramatic and storytelling. And then when I got to about 25, it had just become too much for me. Like um, I, it stopped being fun and started being a real job because unlike many, I was very blessed to have um, just myself as an actor and that being my sole job, right? Most actors, you ask them, what do you do? You know, an actor and then you go, oh, what do you really do? Oh, I'm a waiter at Denny's, right? Or I work at the video store, or I, I do cleaning or whatever. I was lucky in that for most of my life when I was acting, I was acting. That was my job. Um, and then so I had, it had become not just a career and a vocation, but it had become a job. Like it had become laborious. I was, I'd grown a little bit jaded with the industry. And so I retired at around 25 and went back to school and got an engineering degree, uh, started a business. Um, the business did not go well, uh, but it was primarily um, map making and surveying, uh, particularly aerial survey. And our primary client was the government. And when you work for the government, they insist that you have a whole bunch of safety programs. So I had to get all of this safety knowledge and safety training in order to put together this program for my business. And when the business went under, um, a good friend of mine who's a much smarter businessman than I and who I rely on very regularly for good advice has a, a very thriving electrical company. And he had a very large contract with an oil and gas company and building a, a very large complex and they needed an on-site safety officer he said well will you come and be a safety officer for me and i said sure so he paid for the additional training that i needed to kind of upgrade my skills and actually get a safety designation and from there i started to lead these safety meetings and um, toolbox talks and just the general information in the morning and anybody who's ever done a safety meeting knows that it's the fastest lobotomy you could ever get. Like it just, it, right. They're mind numbing and soul crushing. <laughs> they're just, <laughs> they're boring. And I refused to do that. I, I just wasn't going to be a part of it. And so people started to recognize that my safety meetings were different than other people. And because of the environment that I was working in at the time, and because it was a, it was a billion dollar construction project, um, there were a lot of um, high up officials from multiple companies that were present at a lot of the safety meetings. And so when I would lead my bit, they would kind of do one of these things and, and go, hey, you know, that who is this guy? And they would ask questions. And one of the executives, um, president of one of the large general contractor companies in Canada here, came and he said, listen, Tyler, I really like how you present that. I, I, I had told a story about stunt work that I had done in film and how the safest thing I had ever done was jump out of windows. And he said, you know, that's a, that's a hook. Would you mind coming and presenting that at our annual safety stand down as a keynote presentation? I said, sure. He goes, how much would it cost? And I just kind of blurted out a figure, right? Like I didn't even know. And in fact, at the time, I didn't even know what a keynote was, but I've learned very early on from theater sports that you, yes, and somebody says, will you do this thing? You go, yes. And, and then you research and you figure out how to do it. Right. You just, you keep playing on. 
So I had agreed and I just spit out a figure and he says, no, that sounds about right. And it was more than I made in a month working as a safety professional. <laughs> so it was just kind of like, I was like, how much is my check? Well, if I'm gonna have to take time off or if I'm gonna have to do something with Matt, I better make it worth my while. So I, I literally just said the number that was a, a month's worth of wages. And, uh, and, he and he said, yes, so I went and did it. And then as I did the research, I'm like, people get paid to do this. I mean, I, I always know that, like we've always, you know, school assemblies and stuff, like I've seen professional, but I didn't realize that, that you can not only do it, but it can be a really good career. Like it's not, it's not pennies. And, uh, and so I just started doing it more and more and more and, and um, stopped working for my friend. The project was over. He didn't really need an on-site safety professional anymore. And it was, you know, it was a fun gig while I had it, but we didn't need it. But now I had this new thing. And I just really pursued it. And that leads to your other question, which is what is the message of what I do now? And I figured out I have this gift. I have this ability to communicate really well, but I don't really have a message other than people have messages. We all have stories. And so what I do now is empower people to tell their story because it's in telling their story that you can affect real positive change in the world. And I think of like even some of the guests that you've had on your podcast recently, um, Joe Terry, when I listened to her episode about, you know, her husband, Chip, and the undiagnosed struggles that he went through with um, post-traumatic stress and, and the fact that it's very common within the first responder community to have that. And, you know, his struggle and ultimate um, demise because of it. And now she has the foundation to support, like, she has a story. And it doesn't have to be just that. But the more she can tell the story, the more impact she has. Because now you have other first responders who go, oh, that, and, they, and maybe we're undiagnosed the same way that Terry was. And so I, I, I think of people like Joe, who have a foundation, who have a message, who have a real meaning to be out there because I'm just a pretty guy who used to be in film, right? My message is not important, but Joe's message matters. And uh, if anybody doesn't know what I'm talking about, I, you know, they, sh they should be fans of your show because we're listening to this one. But if you haven't listened to the episode that you and, and Joe did, please have your listeners go back, listen to it. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking and yet um, incredibly inspiring at the same time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for saying that. that yeah, she's an incredible woman. Um, but you do have a story. Yeah. And I'd like to hear it. I know a little bit just from reading, but uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm wanting to hear your story. And you're on here. I know my listeners would like to, to hear it because it's inspiring as well. Well, and, and I appreciate that you, <laughs> that you say that because I, and here's the thing I always forget. So for me, um, there has been adversity in my life and there has been struggle and it hasn't always been a smooth road, but every part of my life and my story has led me to here. And so I'm so grateful for everything that has happened in my life that I forget that sometimes um, 
that I've had struggled. And so it's not, so I, in my head, legitimately, Dave, I'm like, I don't have a story. And then you're like, oh, but you do have a story. And I'm like, oh yeah, no, I do. And so I think what you're alluding to, um, when I was 17, uh, New Year's Day, actually, January 1st, 1997, I was in my senior year of high school and uh, I woke up and I have always been the designated driver. So for years, it, I didn't actually start um, consuming alcohol until my late 20s. And even then, it's just very social, very light. I've had no reason for it. There's no um, history of alcoholism in my family. There is no religious reason for me not to. It's just, you know, like very simply, I don't like the taste. And I don't like the feeling. Like I'm, I'm such a, um, a high energy person that frankly any kind of impediment to me is um is frustrating i'm like no so new year's eve i was the designated driver and i was taking people back and forth to different parties and having a good time and socializing but sober and uh, i got home and uh went to bed woke up in the morning january 1st 97 and i found that the left side of my body didn't work that I, I, couldn't, I couldn't really move. I remember waking up and feeling um, almost like, you know, when you sleep on your hand, you fall asleep and the, and the hand doesn't work and you're like numb and you're like, oh, I, I can't work. It was that, but without the numb burning, like it was just numb gone. Like I just, I literally couldn't feel it. That moment before the blood rushes back and you literally can't feel your arm. That was how the whole left side of my body was. And I remember, um, waking up being very confused and not knowing why or how this was happening. And my mom was in the kitchen. She was making breakfast, kind of one of those good morning sun, because I'm pretty sure I woke up around 10 o'clock in the morning. And I was brushing my teeth and the toothpaste wouldn't stay in my mouth. And I couldn't, I, like, I'm, I'm doing this and I'm trying to figure it out. And my mom looked at me, she says, Tyler, what's wrong? You know, she goes, and first question, are you drunk? And I was like, no, she's like, are you hungover? I'm like, no, I didn't drink last night, mom. And then she said to herself, you know, or to me, what is happening? Like, we need to get you to the hospital. And I was like, why? And I just, I wasn't functioning. And so we ended up going to the hospital and I had some kind of, thing. to this day, I haven't actually received a diagnosis. It could have been a palsy, um, which uh, is, has a family history. It could have been a uh, mini stroke, um, just based on the neurological happenings and how it happened. And, um, but whatever happened, my face stopped working and I was 12 years old and I, or sorry, I was 17 years old and I needed desperately to find out what had happened because as an actor, I, that was my livelihood my face. And I didn't know what to do. So it, I, I got really dark over Christmas, essentially, during that Christmas break. And then when I got back to school, I had to withdraw from the show that I was in. And, you know, I felt, I felt completely isolated because of it. And I thought for sure that that was just kind of going to be my life. Now I was going to have this droopy face and I was going to communicate like this, and this was just going to be how the rest of my life went. And I'm so thankful that I had 
the support of the, the people around me to let me know that it wasn't the end of the world. And, you know, even if I didn't get the feeling back, I was still alive <laughs> and, you know, I had my brain, like it could have been worse. I know, uh, I know a, a few different people who have suffered strokes, who have had considerably larger deficits than what I did. And I was able to, uh, over months and months and months of really, really intensive rehab, um, you know, from physiotherapy to acupuncture, laser acupuncture, chiropractic work, um, mindset work. Um, so I had a really great team of holistic doctors who didn't just work on my body, but worked on my mind and helped me um, do some positive vis visualization, which was a, a wonderful thing to be introduced to at a very early age. Um, and, and then, you know, get over it. Like if you, you can see me now, right? I, you wouldn't know. The only time you know that anything has happened or it, you get an inkling of it is when I get really tired or exhausted because I will start, um, my left eye starts to twitch. And I, I will start, uh, you can see a little bit of paralysis, not drooping, but paralysis where I will definitely smile more out of the right side as opposed to the left side. And, and I just, I know that. And so I work on a couple of the physio things that I've learned now over 20 years ago, <laughs> just you know, work it out. You mentioned mindset work and, you know, a lot of, a lot of what I talk about uh, with my guests is leadership, self-leadership, uh, leadership philosophy. And, you know, we all have different challenges, but consistently we all have challenges. We all fall on our face and it's how we approach those bumps in the road that kind of determines our trajectory moving beyond there. And a lot of, well, that can be attributed to our mindset. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I'd like to uh, get a little bit of insight into your philosophy and how the, the mindset work that you've done has helped shape you and, uh, and where you're at right now. Well, I, I'll tell you, my philosophy is, is, is long-winded, and Tony Robbins does a considerably better job of saying it very succinctly and quickly. And he says, life doesn't happen to you. It happens for you. And what he means by that is there is always grace. And I think our jobs as human beings is to find the grace in situations. And understand, like there's, you know, there's the movement of the positive mindset. I'm, I'm not a fan of positive mindset. Um, I studied a lot with uh, Dr. John Demartini, who is a, a great modern day philosopher in, on himself. And, um, you know, he's, he's uh, featured in The Secret and, and a couple of other great films for people who may not know his name. That's a great introduction to what he does. Um, he believes that there is a yin and yang in the world that there are, you know, for it's a proven physics fact for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. You can't, you can't have an event happen without having both sides of the curtain. And if you focus on one or the other, that's where mania happens, right? You get the manic episodes either really high or really low. If you're so focused on just one side, and if you can focus on the balance of it, you know, recognize that there is both there, 
and recognize that it's not necessarily good and bad. I think we label and our labels that we put on events uh, create the mindset. So for me, I look at equal and opposite. What is the one reaction this way and what is the unintended consequence on the other side? And how do we move through that down the middle and find balance? Because the, the quicker we can see um, this happened and these are the two sides of it and move on, the, the, fast, the less of the oscillation and the straighter the line, the quicker the path. And I know like there's, there's times where I dwell, right? I just dwell on things and, and it goes nowhere. And so to be able to recognize that, hey, the event happened, where is the grace? And, and when I learned that from Tony, it really changed a lot for me because, you know, I can look back, like, I don't think my father passing was a good thing, right? Let's make no mistake. But was there grace in that? Was there divine influence in it? Absolutely. Because if my father hadn't passed, um, I wouldn't have learned the lessons or been on the life trajectory that I am now. And if I hadn't had my stroke at 17, I wouldn't have been introduced to a lot of the mindset work that I did. I also wouldn't have had the hunger or the drive. Like I was coasting along from six to 17 with natural acting ability and frankly, charm and good looks. Like <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the whole package and I can carry a tune. I wouldn't call myself a singer, but I, I do have vocal talents and I can take choreography, but I'm not a dancer, right? But I, I, I can do all those things quite competently and I am a very good actor. And so I had, I had talent and I could make it in that business. But what I didn't have was a reason to, to want it until it was taken away. I mean, overnight, I literally, I fell asleep the beginning of New Year's Day, woke up midway through New Year's Day, and my life changed. And I, I needed that. Uh, did it suck to having to withdraw from the program? At the time, it did. You know, not being able to be in, in the, my final performance for my senior year at a fine arts high school. Um, definitely was an impotence, it, you know, but it gave me a hunger because I was told, I was told in June of 1997 that I would never make it as a professional actor. And in July, I was living in Hollywood North, Vancouver, Canada, and had my first role. And I didn't look back, you know, and now I get to say I've worked with um, Helen Murren, William H. Macy, Sir Ian McKellen, you know, I've, I've got to do so many cool things because of that. So there was grace in all of that. Um, there was even grace in, in the loss of my business because it put me on a new path and put me into this position where I can confidently go and, and tell people that they have a story, that they have, uh, a message for the world that they can that they can talk to you know and that their message can have impact it just like you know even Jackie Bruder when she was on your show right like everybody has these messages and if we can if we can understand that by sharing our message that we can have impact on people that we can have measurable positive change in the world to make it better, 
just by sharing our story, that's powerful. And that's, that's what I want to do. Now I'm on a mission. Like it drives me every day. I, I oftentimes when I'm telling my clients, like, well, how do I know if it's the right thing? Because a lot of them struggle with, you know, what is the mission or why is the why? And I'm growing up in theater and growing up in the fine arts, we tend to be off hours, right? Like a work day for uh, an actor starts really early is two in the afternoon, right? <laughs> Typically, you're starting around four or five. Like even when I was in the fine arts high school, I went, uh, the reason I went to the fine arts high school was because my classes didn't start till noon, but we also rehearsed a show until nine or 10 or 11 or 12 at night, right? So there was a reason for it. So I've always been kind of off and I don't like getting up before 10 o'clock in the morning. But for this, you'd have said, let's record at 5.30 a.m. I'd have, I'd have done it. And I'm doing a lot of press, you know, I'm, I'm doing stuff all over the world. Nicely, it's virtual. But because it's virtual, we have all the time zone things. So like I was doing a, a recording with a, a wonderful woman in Australia at 3.30 in the morning, my time. I just set my alarm, got up and I'm jazzed. This is me showing up. I'd show up like, like this at 3.30 in the morning and 3.30 in the afternoon because this is my mission. This is what I want to do. I want people to be able to tell their stories. What is it about empowering others to tell their story where does that come from um because one you've got you've got quite a story yourself and and i want to get back to uh some of that as well because you know i believe i read that you you lost your your dream home and i mean like well let how about we talk about that right now? Because sure. uh, so one, how did that play out? And how long did it take you to go? All right, the, I'm not going to let this define me. Um, well, so what an interesting thing happened. So I, I had talked about working for my friend, Matt, who was the electrician and doing the, the safety gig. Um, but it came to an end and it came to an end in 2015 um, or 2014. And so I kind of tried to get another safety position um, this summer of 2014. And because I had started to, you know, I, we were seeing some great success in my wife and I. Um, we at that point had been married four and a half years and had been together for over eight and we were you know she's she's an incredible professional herself my wife is uh, um, architectural technologist and uh, project manager has multiple designations <laughs> multiple certificates and degrees and diplomas from schools all over like my wife is incredibly smart and and is rewarded financially for her brilliance at the various um, places that she's worked. And so we were doing really good for ourselves. And so we, my wife, because she is in construction, literally designed our house from the ground up. She picked the lot. Um, she picked the community. She designed every facet of that house and made it perfect. I mean, it was so perfect. And we could afford it because she was making really good money. And I was making really good money 
And we were even, we were even responsible. You know, you go and you, you find out how much you qualify, pre-qualify for, for a mortgage. And we went, well, just because we qualify for this doesn't mean we should do it. So let's cut it in half. So whatever we pre-qualify for, we're going to cut in half and that will be our budget. And she stuck to it. I remember thinking to myself, oh, but you know, it's only a couple, couple grand more. Let's just add this or this. And she's like, no, the budget is this. I said, okay. And she made it happen. She, it, we, we didn't skimp on anything. She just found creative ways to make sure that we didn't have to pay more than what we could. But then we got pregnant and I got laid off. So when she went on mat leave and I had no income coming in, we saw an 87% reduction in our annual income in 2015. And we did everything to try to keep that house. I, you know, we tried talking to the bank and, and pushing the mortgage, but we didn't take possession of it until September of 2014. So come February 5th, 2015, when all of this kind of happened. Um, and then when my daughter was born in July of that year, uh, there, it was just, it was a mountain that couldn't, could not be climbed. And I mean, we rented it out as an Airbnb. I even um, contacted all my film contacts and used it as a location. So we did some location shoots for it. Um, I just, I did everything that I could think of to try and keep that alive, but it just doesn't work. We, the mortgage was too much. We were bleeding money left, right, and center. And, and we had to let it go. It just, it had to go. And it was a hard and painful decision because we literally invested everything into it. And we did not get back when we sold it because 2015 was during the housing crash. <laughs> so uh, every month we were watching housing prices dip by three, five, 7%. And we just couldn't sell. We couldn't keep ahead of the pricing. Like we'd, we'd lower our price, but then everybody on the block had lowered theirs even more. And we just couldn't get ahead of it. And finally it was gone and, and we lost everything. But in doing it, um, we really had to simplify, you know, rented a house for two and a half, three years. And, and when my wife and I were married, we'd never rented. We'd always owned, I'd always owned property. And, you know, property was a, a value to me, like, you know, property ownership, but it was again, a great blessing. Cause now I, I learned, well, yeah, but if I'm paying, $2,000 a month, $3,000 a month into a mortgage, but I could rent for 1200, you know, yeah, I don't own, but think of all that, that money that I'm saving here that can then be used to gain wealth other ways. So I started to learn about investments and I, I learned about how to invest in myself and how to develop my own business and really, really propel it forward. Um, so it hurt, it stung. Two years, I was bitter. And, um, you know, I, we don't even drive back to the community that the house was in still to this day. Um, the house that we're in currently, we do own. And I love this place. And, but, and it's considerably more affordable. It, you know, it's the exact same size as the house that we were in before, but uh, two thirds less as far as a mortgage goes. And uh, both my wife and I are earning even more now than what we were back in 2014. So it all came full circle. Like life is brilliant right now. 
and I love it, but I needed to learn those lessons. First of all, the material stuff didn't matter, right? The, it was sad for us because emotionally it was the house where my daughter was born. And, and we had it designed with this life in mind, but that was, it was a projection. It wasn't real. It was a fantasy. And I got to tell you, the reality that I'm living now is 10 times better than the fantasy that we had imagined. And the fantasy that we imagined was pretty darn good. But I wouldn't trade this now. So we needed that lesson. That's pretty incredible. Um, so you talked a little bit about it, but to use your platform to help empower others tell their story, to encourage them to tell their story. Where does that come from? To be honest, I've, I've seen the power of story. I've seen the power of sharing firsthand. I, I have the extreme privilege and, and gift, really, to speak publicly and get invited to some great workshops and symposiums. And whether I'm a keynote or I'm just a presenter, I get to talk with a lot of really cool people. And I was asked to present a few years ago at a really, really amazing venue called Life by Design. And I had come given my talk, right? Just we're going, uh, I presented a talk that I do called um, Your River, Your Dreams. And it kind of inspired by the lyrics of um, Billy Joel's River of Dreams and Garth Brooks' The River. And I love both of those songs. They just, I, I listen to them very regularly. I find them inspiring and it, they, they move me. They, they, they get me just pumped. And, and I like them too, because so I'll play them at the beginning and the end of that talk because it just joneses me. But it's just, you know, it's a, a goal setting talk. It's, it's, it's nothing real motivating or anything. It's, it's a good talk. It's a good presentation. It's always well received. But right after my presentation, an incredible speaker, Jared Morrison, came and presented his talk called The 10-Minute Time Machine. And in it, he discussed how he had struggled with um, addiction for a very long while. Uh, in fact, since his late teens, and had, you know, it had cost him his his marriage, his relationship with his kids, and he also struggled um, with mental health and suicidal thoughts as a, as a consequence. And he had, at one point in his life, basically dedicated himself to finding a way to end his life in a way that wouldn't null and void his life insurance because he sold life insurance for a living. And this was a very difficult thing for him to discuss because of that, because he is an insurance broker and you don't, that's a taboo. You don't say this stuff, but he shared his story about the time where he got it right. And he got it right on an evening when despite all legal reasons and rationale, his wife had um, 
needed him to take the kids for an evening. And he hadn't had them for months, if not a year at that point. And she just, she just needed this favor. And he put them to bed and had tried to go to bed himself and then had over the course of a little bit kind of forgot and had gotten back into his routine because that was his nightly routine was he would go and, and play with this cocktail of pills and alcohol and try to end his life and as, make it look as accidental as it could. And he got locked into the cycle to the point where he forgot that his kids were there and had gone on doing what he was going to do. And he got it right. And as he lay on the couch dying, his son woke up and came in and saw him and he snapped. He, he, he became conscious and he, he says, he talks about it, about how he, it was outer body experience where he was literally floating above himself and seeing the situation unfold and everything in his body was screaming, no, not now, this can't happen now, this can't be the way that it is, it can't happen like this, not in front of my kids. And his son phoned 911 and they rushed him to emergency, they pumped his body of all of the toxins um, and it was, you know, it was the bottom, that was rock bottom. And he talks about in the 10 minute time machine, if he could go back in time and change those 10 minutes, would he? And he said he wouldn't. He wouldn't because he needed the wake up. He needed to realize that he actually did have a reason to live, that his kids were his reason, that he didn't actually want to be out. The whole reason he was trying to kill himself was to try and give a better life for his kids because he wanted them to have this insurance policy. And that was his focus until he realized that their lives wouldn't be better without him. That what he needed to do was change his life and be better for them so that they could have a good life. That the money wasn't going to change anything. His presence, an actual presence, being present in their life would change their life. And so he told this story. And, and the thing about Jared, if you ever get a chance to see him talk, he is a delight. You know, he has you crying and laughing at the same time. Like he just, he sees the world in a brilliant way and he's an incredible communicator. And the audience was just, you know, weeping at the end and everybody was moved by it. And there was a woman in the audience that came to him and she said, I need help. And she had gotten a ticket to Life by Design gifted to her. A friend had bought and one had given it to her. And she had taken it to be polite, but had every intention of going to the weekend, the Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then on Monday, she had the full plan. She had the ammunition and the firearm picked out. And she too was going to take that final decision. And hearing what Jared said, talked her out of it. And she reached out to him. And then she got the help that she needed to work on her mental state. And she came back to Life by Design the following year and told her story about where she was at and how things changed. And oddly enough, in the audience, there were three people who heard her message, who then came to her afterwards and said, listen, I am struggling with these thoughts and how, how can I get the help that I need? Because I don't, I agree with you. I don't want to take that final step. Um, and they were in various stages. The one was very similar, was very, very close. It's close to the edge. And so I look at the power of story. 
and I, you know, I think of like even Joe Terry, you know, or um, talking about Chip and how that has an impact. And I think about Jared talking about his story and how it had impact. And they don't have to be tragic ones. Like we talk about the lessons that I've learned from triumph. Like they don't have to all be bad. What did you, what good happened in your life? And tell us, tell us the good, share with us how this is impacted and, and, and let me pattern and, and do it. And the power of story is that it allows me to see the world through your eyes and walk in your shoes, right? Never judge a man or a woman until you've walked a mile in their shoes. Well, let me, let me take that journey with you. And that's the power of story. And when Jared told his story, it, it impacted a life, literally impacted a life. And then that person told her story and it impacted three lives. And I don't know how far that ripple goes, but I want to be the drop in the pond. I want to be the catalyst of that wave, knowing that I've empowered people to tell their story and tell it in a powerful way. Because my story, my gift is to be able to help you do this, to, to feel it in your bones so that you can go and take the stage confidently and express it. And here's the thing. When I say take the stage, I don't mean big auditorium. I mean, be able to have a tough conversation one-on-one -on -one or in a boardroom or in, in the privacy of your living room with people who are important in your life. And if you can get that message out to a hundred, a thousand, 10,000 people, great. But it starts with these one-on-one -on -one conversations and having the tough ones, um, knowing that your message matters and that you absolutely, you have the ability to impact people. I think you, you quote it famously too, right? Uh, the Oracle at Delphi's maxim, know thyself. I believe that authenticity is synonymous with self-awareness. And until we can fully, truly know who we are, um, we, we're not really actually living. And I, in my book, often say that the thing you're afraid to say is the thing that your audience needs to hear. And it's when we can open ourselves up and be vulnerable and have the power to speak naked. And by naked, I mean our exposed truth. When we have the power to do that, that's when we can change the world. That's when we can have an impact. And I just, I know it in my heart. I need to give people this power because it is a true gift. It is one of the greatest gifts a, any human can have. You gave me chills, man. <laughs> it's, welcome to my soapbox, man. When I get that sermon going, whoo, I give myself chills. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, uh, it's incredible. Um, So can you can you talk a little bit about your book, The Power to Speak Naked? You you hit on it right there, essentially what it's about to 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 bear yourself. What the book is is you know there's a lot of a lot of places people can go to get training to public speak, right? Everywhere from Toastmasters to Carnegie. Um, you know, Brian Tracy has a great program. There's a lot of places that will show you the technical aspects of public speaking, right? And teach you how to get up and actually present information. 
What I find is not a lot of them help you do a deep dive into why you're doing it, for one, or how to tell your story. Like, how do I actually be compelling? How do I get up on my sermon and give a riff that gives Dave chills when we're chatting? Like, how do I find the passion in that? How do I effectively tell a story? And I wrote the book because that's, that's how we communicate. Humans have been communicating for hundreds, if not thousands of years through oral tradition. It's how we pass things on. You know, they're not, for a very long time, very few humans on the planet could read and write. But from months after we're born, we're able to speak. We've always been able to. And it's, that's how we communicate ideas. And it's ideas that are transformative. And so the book is designed to help everyday people, right? If you want to be a big public speaker, if you want to be Les Brown or Tony Robbins or uh, Darren Hardy, great. I, I want to support that and because I think that's a great platform to spread your message. But my book is for the charity owner who has a mission and she just needs to be able to communicate it better so that she can get better funding and better resources for her community and serve her community and find the people that they that want it. My book is for the people um, like Jared, whose message matters and can have real positive change in the world if I can just empower them to have the courage to speak the thing that's in their heart the thing that's in their heart that their mind won't let them say and let them see how freeing it can be to let it out, to expose themselves, to speak their raw naked truth. And then on the surface too, like legitimately, I want people to feel so confident in their message that they could go and take a stage in the emperor's clothes and be able to tell their message because it doesn't matter because nobody would be looking at what they were wearing or not wearing, that they would be enthralled with the message that they were saying that it wouldn't matter. And to give people the power to speak that without the need for a PowerPoint or presentation or props or all the gimmicks, you know, if you can add to your story with it, great, but I want to strip it down to the raw bear story so that it's so compelling that you don't need that stuff that we get back to the campfire conversation and storytelling and oral tradition where you can just move people just by your voice. You got me pretty pumped up, man. <laughs> so before we started recording, you, you told me that if, if I want to read your book, is it available paperback, hardcover, digital? So it's definitely available hard our paperback. We will have a hardcover, a limited edition hardcover coming out when the book re-releases September 7th. Um, so, but definitely you can get it in the paperback. And uh, I would strongly encourage everybody to, if they have to pick an online retailer, go to barnesandnoble.com and search for the book and get it pre-ordered through barnesandnoble.com or better yet, particularly right now, go to your local bookstore, go find mom and pop. Right. The, this last year has been hard on brick and mortar stores, mom and pop operations. My book is available throughout the world. So uh, 
your mom and pop store can easily order it through their their book retailer. Uh, there's a very large network that has it available. So if you have to order it online, barnesandnoble.com. If you can, go find your local brick and mortar store. And if you just want more information on either the book or me or what I do or my mission or what I'm at, the best way to get a hold of me and the best place for all of my resources is at seantylerfoley.com. And Sean is spelled S-E-A-N-T-Y-L-E-R-F-O-L-E-Y.com. That is the best place to get all the things Tyler Foley. That's awesome. Yeah, your your website is is pretty impressive. Um, you've got, just going through your website has inspired me to retool mine, actually. So <laughs> That's great. If you ever need it, uh, my web designer, Tracy, is is incredible. And I'm sure she's put her information down at the bottom of my website. And if she hasn't, I'm going to remind her that she needs to, because she is a godsend. Let me tell you, I am not a tech person. I, I, I tell story, right? That's what I do. I think obviously, I think, I hope your audience sees that now. Uh, but I don't, I don't know how to say this is what I want visually right? Because my whole point is get rid of the visuals. <laughs> so that's your message. It's really hard when you can explain what you want visually. And my poor webmaster, Tracy, oh man, she does brilliant genius work in me going, well, I don't know what I want, kind of do the this. And then she puts together these, just this genius graphical representation <laughs> of what's swimming around in my mind. And I, I'm so blessed and grateful to have her. Uh, so yeah, no, she does great work. If anybody needs it, look her up. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. And Tyler, this this has been, I, I wasn't exactly sure what to expect. Um, like reading about you, I knew it was going to be a good story, a, a good conversation, but um, uh, I, I'm... I'm so happy that you agreed to come on and, and talk with me. It's uh, it's very empowering. And many of the people that I've talked to, they've got this, this story. And I feel like what you have to say is very empowering in the sense that telling our personal story in order to help others is uh is huge and it can be freeing very liberating um so man thank you so much and uh i will i will have your website the name of your book um in, in the show notes well listen dave it was uh a joy and a pleasure to be on the show. Um, I thank you for all you do and, and the service that you've given um, and for having a venue like this for people to come and share their stories. I mean, what you're doing is true service. And uh, if I can be some small part of that, I'm grateful to be included in the conversation. And I just, I wanna thank you for what you and your show are doing and for what you have done in your life and all you've done to impact and help your community. So thank you. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. 
Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.